0: Start a chat, tell them that Casey sent you. If you have Salesforce Pardot, when you schedule and then do a demo, they will send you a free copy of my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed. Not bad, right? Well, it's only while supplies last, so hop on this thing today. And that's it for sponsors. Let's get to the show. All right. Just like that, I hit record, and this one, I'm excited. I was reviewing the notes or our our chat beforehand and i i can't wait to introduce you to who i'm talking to today Uh, she is a marketing leader and abm expert Uh, she will be my abm spirit guide for the next few minutes talking me off the 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 ledge Um, she's very passionate and she she she's an advocate for just that customer experience the overall picture and and talking to the the sales beginning and the retention at the end and we're just going to dive into all of that Previously, Vice President of Research at Serious Decisions, uh, as well as the VP of Marketing over at Engageo, now a marketing consultant, Megan Viewer. Here's the the thought, right? We wanted to pick your brain. It's the Marketing Leadership Series, talking to senior-level marketers, understanding how you approach things. And then also, I know you have experience from working at Serious and and just being an implementer in EM with Engageo. Wanted to get your, 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 you're taking all of that. Here you go. I'm going to pass you this. This is Thor's hammer. It's heavy, but you, oh, wow. One hand. That's that's impressive. So that's that's Thor's hammer. hammer. Take that and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Just set the record straight once and for all.
1: Oh my gosh. I was so happy when you told me I got to smash a myth. I didn't know I would get an actual hammer. That makes it even more
0: fun. 100%. Thor's hammer at
1: that an awesome hammer. So <laughs> here's the thing. I kid you not when I say that for the last more years than I care to talk about, the same myth has dogged me and many of my colleagues at Serious Decisions. And I am so happy to like actually get to say what that myth is and then why it's total nonsense.
0: <laughs> Once and for all, smash it for all time. Anyone else ever asked you the question, you just point them at your episode and be like, go listen, then we'll talk.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. What is it? What's
0: this myth that's been like chasing you like a ghost?
1: Okay. So the myth is the dreaded 67% statistic. Okay. And I don't know why every analyst firm seems to have some version of the 67% statistic, but the myth the wrong one, and I'm gonna say this, it's like in capital letters with bright lights on it, the wrong one of the 67% is that 67% of the buyer's journey is over before sales gets involved. And there are variations on that theme, but that's the one that says, hey, most people have everything done and then they talk to sales. That is dead wrong, has been dead wrong, has been proven dead wrong through many years and many, many, many cycles of research. So the problem is, for some reason, it stuck with people because I think it seems like it should be true, but it isn't, right? It just isn't. The evidence, and this is literally thousands of B2B buyers describing in excruciating detail how they go through their buying cycle, right? And it's also many many b2b sellers talking about when they win what happens
2: mm.
1: right so it's both sides of the equation it's not just you know the buyer and it's not just the seller it's not just wishful thinking from the rest of us in marketing it is in fact there's plenty of evidence on this one and what the myth what, what the correct statement is and was back in the day believe it or not 2013 crazy to say so we mm. should be careful believing things from 2013 Seriously. um But the real statement is that 67% of the buyer's journey is done digitally. Okay. So that's the correct statement. Now, what's different in that statement versus nobody talks to sales until 67% into the buyer's journey? Right. It's a subtle but important difference, right? And the difference is that When you win a deal, chances are the seller was involved in an early stage and buyers want sellers involved in an early stage of buying. Yes, they're going online. Yes, they're attending, well, used to be attending events. And yes, they're talking to analysts or reviewing content, doing all of those things. And yes, a lot of that work is online but at the same time they are engaging with a seller. And that's really important because if in particular you're in a market where somebody needs to help you either figure out that you have a problem, maybe you didn't know you had. So mm-hmm. how am I going to do 70% of my research if I don't even know I have a problem? I'm not even right. looking. I didn't know, right? right? So I need my seller involved early to help me know I have a challenge, right? right. Um And then part two of that is if I am solving for a challenge in a different way, very often early conversations with sellers help to set the terms of how I'm thinking about getting to my solution. And that's really important because those smart sellers are in there helping the buyer to crystallize their need and then clarify the solution they bring to the table, which may also make it harder for competitors to get in there. Right. Yeah. Um, And that's really important. And I think it's it's a mistake for companies to sort of give up on great sales enablement early in the sales process. And it's more true than ever now because we're competing for eyeballs with everybody else's great content and webcasts and online events and name your favorite. How do you stand out? Somebody you think has something useful to bring to the table, Mm. i.e. a good seller is a competitive advantage.
0: Yeah. 100%. How, how, any ideas how this got misconstrued? Because I, I know that for sure, I think I've heard it used to say like, sales, you're not really important anymore. Give us more of the budget marketing. We really do all the work over here. We just hand you those hot leads and you just do a one call close. Like (laughs) how did, how did it go from, I can buy that a lot of it's done digitally. Sure. Um, It's it's 2020 now, um, or 2013 then. But um, <laughs> but but how how did it, how did it get twisted? Any ideas? I I think we were
1: all and still are very ready to believe that most of our decision making happens off of a rational evaluation process. Where we decide what our problem is and we go and do all of our homework and we build our, you know, comparison spreadsheets and, and we talk to our colleagues and we figure out all what are all, you know, all those steps that you would go through to make a decision and that we can do and, and choose to do most of them ourselves online. It's possible to get more information than any of us could ever need online, which is great. That's good. And what's, what's, I think, important about that, the power in the buying cycle is very much in the hands of that buyer and all mm-hmm. the buying committee inside of a B2B organization. And that's multiple people from end user influencers to ratifiers and finance and procurement and IT to executives to right. you know, line of business leaders. They're all doing all that homework and they're all doing a lot of it online
2: mm-hmm.
1: all day. And so that felt true the assumption is that that also meant that all of that work was happening in the early stages of buying because so many of our systems in marketing in particular were designed to find handraisers when they were doing that homework
2: mm. and
1: then hand them over to sales and say, see you later.
2: Right. And say, so see you later. Think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We were making assumptions about the fact that, Mark or that sales isn't involved in the early stages because marketing is the one with the content and the online experience and all those things we assumed were only meaningful at the beginning of the experience because our systems told us, okay, get people to score up to a certain threshold, turn them into a lead and hand them over to sales. Okay, but here's the thing. The evidence shows that people want to engage marketing throughout every stage of buying. And by Mm -hmm. the way, post-sale too, right? They want to engage with marketing stuff after they buy. They they still need information and they still want to get it themselves. Um, All the great experiences that marketing delivers online and offline play at every stage of buying. And there's a ton of evidence that shows that. Um, It is also the case that buyers want to engage with sellers. And I don't know about you, but a lot of the sellers I work with are really smart, consultative, um, knowledgeable people Hmm. who bring a lot to the table when you're having a good conversation with a buyer, for right?
2: Sure. Mm-hmm. And
1: they're a resource. And you know what? Buyers know that and they want that help. Um, and they want somebody who's going to curate some of that content in some cases for them even to if say. they're good,
0: if they're be- not the, really yeah they're not hawking, you know, cheap, Sales tactics, but they're actually being consultative. Yeah, absolutely. They're like, good, bring in your free sales consulting.
1: (laughs) Exactly. You're helping me. Like, you're free consulting. It's great. So, it's a myth to think that they don't get involved early on because buyers don't want them to. They do. And it's a myth to think marketing doesn't get involved later because everybody always wants to engage with marketing stuff. Um, So, the point is (laughs) that you have truly a partnership. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's been really hard then for marketing and sales organizations is to kind of reflect that reality as the buyer sees it. Cause we're too busy trying to fill the top of the funnel in marketing and sort of saying, good luck to you after we hand it to sales in right. many organizations, not all that's, that's a, that's a broad statement, but let's call it in many um, and we're rewarded for filling the top of the funnel, right. And hoping that that converts at a good rate. And then, Um, you know, I think we're also rewarded for sellers getting credit for finding opportunities themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's a challenge too, right? It's like, if I'm the seller, I want credit for finding and closing opportunities. If I'm marketing, I want credit for finding and having sales close opportunities, but I still need the credit at the top of the funnel. There's a whole bunch of problems in there, but I think the myth, the way that it came to be known um, was definitely part of kind of the old way we thought about that handoff.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as you're describing that, I think sometimes we just were in that, in that delusional mindset or, you know, I've been there where it's like, yeah, we do our part. We hand it over to sales and then we know that sales isn't going to nurture it or, or, you know, that's the typical market thing. Well, they're going to just not do anything with it. And, but we can't touch it. Cause they're like, keep your hands off at marketing and, it goes into la-la land and we have to like fight for control over the lead once it goes over. But it sounds like what the more ideal setup is this very fluid, we're both available for, for someone. And, and, you know, sales isn't far off in the future. They might be early on with the chat and they might be, you know, early on with the phone call and marketing's continuing their magic throughout the process. So it's not just like, you know, mine, your battle, you know, at some certain point, it's like, we, we both own it throughout the whole process.
1: That is exactly it. That's 100% it, right? And it has to not be about who gets credit for finding it. Because yeah. especially if you're in a business model that says most of your growth comes from your existing customers, which by the way is like everybody right now,
2: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> um, whether you like it or not, whether you wanted that or not, but it is the case in many companies. Um, you just have to stop fighting over credit and start paying attention yeah. to what people actually want to do and and what gets you to a Yes. Um, and what gets you to our best friend, Mr. No Decision? And what gets you to a loss?
0: Right. Get to something.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah See,
0: stop wasting time.
1: You know, what path should we be on together?
0: Right. How do you do that? Um, maybe it's simpler for me to ask you the question than for you to answer, but <laughs> how someone do you to stop fighting over credit? Because doesn't credit keep us around in the marketing world? You know, we're targets on our back. How do we? How do we stop fighting over credit, but then still we're, we're integrated part of the team and they're not like getting rid of us.
1: Yeah. You know, that is such a hard question because it's yeah. funny. I I remember um, like literally I thought an audience was going to start throwing things at me when <laughs> I said in front of a large group of marketers that I thought they should sign up for a number. <laughs> and, then was, I was, yeah. and I mean, I honestly thought there were going to be pitchforks thrown, but, um, yeah. But I said, you know, love the number. The number's good for you because to your point, right, at that time, especially back in, you know, the scary days of 2013 and before like 2000, oh gosh, whatever it was, eight when I joined Serious Decisions, um, that was a big deal for marketing to be comfortable taking credit for a number to say, hey, we're, you know, we're not a cost center. We're bringing in money. And I think it was really important for a while for marketing to have that separate target because they got that credibility, that they were willing to sign up for a number. They were willing to own, you know, part of that pipeline for sourcing it. They were willing to think about the fact that they couldn't just be, you know, an endless budget item that you know, put on really big expensive events and did all this fancy advertising and sort of all that old school stuff, okay. Yeah. Um, but they were like, no, we're a strategic engine that engages customers where they want to be. And at that time, you know, and even now it's digital, right? They, they want digital engagement and experiences. Yeah. We are the keepers of that. And that is a critical part of our buyer's journey. Um, and we should be keeping score. The question is, how do you keep score in a credible way now when it's truly a partnership and right
0: because they they like when you're when you're married don't keep score but (laughs) this is more of like a a sports team partnership where if either of us aren't fitting the bill here one of us has to go away so we need to both step up so but how do you keep score and not build animosity or competition or
1: yeah i mean i think first of all it's got to be that um and this is where I like a lot of the things that are happening around like revenue operations where you've got, yeah, you know, sales ops, marketing ops, and customer ops kind of all becoming, you know, working together on data and planning. You know, first of all, you gotta agree on where you wanna be. What is your goal? Right? How are you gonna grow? What accounts are you trying to grow? Um, you gotta have that focus. Okay. And then you start to break down the focus. Well, how much of that is going to be Net new acquisition, how much of that is cross-sell, how much of that upsell? how much of that is, you know, whatever else you may do to bring in revenue, price increases or other things, but you get that really smart model going that says where growth will come from, and then you break down and say, and what part of that is sales, marketing, and I would argue customer too, right, if you've got account managers or customer success, there's a piece of that, a part that they can play in that, maybe not traditional sourcing, but there's a part they play. Um, but you break that down and then you start to say, all right, if we think about the way that our buyers engage with us, what part can we monitor to know whether or not we are bringing to the table what we should be? And ultimately, right. we are all accountable for creating pipeline. We're all accountable for converting it and closing revenue and hitting those targets. We're right. just accountable for different parts of the journey and different numbers will tell us how well we're doing getting there.
0: So, if you were to if you were to design it, what would you want to monitor and be responsible for? Yeah, kind
1: of, I mean,
2: yeah.
1: actually, I think um, it, there were a lot of good things about sort of the model that Engageo um, uses for tracking and measuring that journey. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think what it comes down to is first and fun. And, but if I think about you know sort of how would I just sort of break that down in my own terms, I say you start with who do I care about, right? What's my target account list? (laughs) Um, Every B2B company knows whether it's thousands or 20, the number and type of companies that they want to be selling to or they should. Um, Pretty hard today not to have some kind of target list, right? Right. Once I know who, then I need to say, okay, which of those are companies that I'm not currently doing any business with and which companies am I doing some business with And you start to profile them out to say, okay, for these different groupings of companies, these are the things I need to accomplish. And then you start to pay attention to kind of what's underneath that. And this was actually a great model from Serious Decisions um, where they talked about the metric spectrum. Hmm. Um, And it helps you break this down. So, okay, I'm trying to get to these accounts and I'm trying to grow the business to this number. Now I need to start with, okay, readiness is what stuff do I have to do to be prepared to deliver on that number? So it could be something like, wow, I've got a target account list and a good portion of them are companies that are in a new vertical that I want to sell to. Okay. And I don't really have any contacts in that vertical. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> it's going to be awfully hard for me to, you know, sell and close that account if I don't it even will. know who I should be talking to. So one of the first things you'd measure from a readiness perspective is am I putting in place efforts to get those contacts in Uh, the right roles, in the right accounts? I see that. Right, and that's an activity then. Did I find those people, right? Am I doing things to find those people and how well is it going? And the output of that, which is the next type of thing, so it goes readiness, activity, output. The output of that is I have names and I have pipeline because I've identified Mm -hmm. my buyers, you know, my buying group within those Mm -hmm. accounts and they're now hopefully in my pipeline. And then at the top, I have my impact number, which is, did I close the revenue that I wanted to get to in that new vertical? Right. Yeah. And and other things could be like, and did I do it at a great customer acquisition cost? Is it costing me an obscene amount of money to win those two <laughs> customers? Or am I doing it pretty efficiently? How can I tune that up? Things like that. But you see kind of that layering of numbers that says, what do I need to do to be prepared to deliver on my yeah. goal? How am I doing with the stuff I got to do to make that happen? And then ultimately, is that getting me the financial outcomes or the organizational outcomes like, you know, great net promoter scores or whatever else you're measuring at the top of that pyramid? Um, Is it getting me there?
0: Yeah, I see it. And and I don't know if this metaphor fits, but uh, I was picturing a chocolate cake just now because chocolate cake. (laughs) Because
1: why not? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And (laughs) just
0: the idea of like peeling back layers, but they they add up to being the cake, which And we're going to have it and eat it too. But it's like, let's get that revenue and let's get that customer in the door. But then at what cost, like your point, at what cost did we get them in the door? Um, Or are we moving other people in that direction? Are we getting closer to being more ready to, so I see the different layers that all add up and support that overall picture of we are helping, we're doing our part of the bargain to get these things teed up.
1: Yeah. And so like another one would be, okay, so I know, say it's an existing customer, right? And I know the names of the people that I'm trying to engage. Are they looking at the stuff I want them to look at? Right. Right. Are they showing intent in other places, just not talking to me about it? And what am I doing about that? You know, those are, there's so much great information out there about the people that you want to engage and the things that they're doing with you or with others that becomes those great, you know, uh, instead of breadcrumbs, I'm going to say cake crumbs. I love it. <laughs> it sounds so much better. Cake crumbs. bread
0: crumbs. honestly, like cake crumbs are where it's at. I mean, I get it. They're stickier, but get a napkin and eat them.
1: <laughs> now, now I want cake. Um, anyhow, I'll have to, what my kind, daughter's to big We're going to we'll talk about that later, but anyhow. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so you take your cake crumbs and you start yeah. to say, are these actually leading somewhere or do I just have a big old mess?
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, it would be a shame to follow the the cake crumbs and not get to an actual piece of cake.
1: Exactly. But the crumbs are the things that tell you early enough in the cycle if you are or you are not. And also kind of where you're missing the boat, right?
0: That makes sense, right? Because for longer sales cycles, you can't wait for the, marketing might not even be still be there by the time those deals close. We need some early indicators to show these things.
1: Yeah. That was some of my advice to folks that were, and still is, you know, if you're starting on an ABM path um, or even if you're like working on customer retention, which a lot of folks are doing now, right. Um, That can seem like a long way off, especially if you've got contracts that don't renew for months or years Um, If you've got deal cycles that, um, you know, I've worked with customers that have deal cycles that literally take years. And to your point, like, unless they're super patient with the people in the marketing team, (laughs) you may not be there long enough to see some of those close. And same with sellers, right? So you have to think about what leading indicators show me I'm tracking in the right direction. Yeah, And then help people understand why they matter because you're always telling them where you're trying to go, but you're also, it's never like a random list of activities. Like I'm doing these 27 things. Aren't they great? It's here's where I'm trying to get now here's what I'm doing to get to the people who will help me get there. And here's what those people are doing. And here's how I'm showing the impact of my work and, you know, whatever levers you need to pull, whether it's, you know, acquisition cost reduction or profitability increases or average deal size increases or choose your favorite. There's numbers that will show you all those things. Right. Soon enough that you will hopefully keep your job longer.
0: (laughs) Right. So you're like, Hey, no, here's what's happening guys. Here's what's happening. Um, It's working. The cake is on the way.
1: Yes, exactly. Look, it's in the oven. It looks really
0: <laughs> Oh yeah. And you start smelling it across the house and everyone's <laughs> like, Who's making brownies? You know, that's the thing that smells I don't know if cake <laughs> smells like that, but I know if you made brownies in the office, maybe that's marketing's next tip is just make brownies for the sales team in the office. And we're not oh. even in the office though, so just make them for yourself. Yeah. The marketers need to make brownies for themselves right now and have some self care.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> uh, brownies are always a good idea.
0: Yeah, They really are. I mean, they're so simple. And let's just say, you know, brownie marketing right here. Yeah. One, one quick question for you on the, the 67. Um, It's funny how people just adjust that number to make up. um, What should we have gotten from that? Maybe we've already discussed it, but we know what the myth, the myth is, and we're not saying it's all marketing. We're not saying sales, sales is important. They're part of this thing, but the fact that it's done digitally, what should we have taken? As a yeah. takeaway from the fact that it's all it, it's mostly digital now
1: yeah i i think i mean today you know fast forward from when that you know statistic first started driving me yeah. crazy to now um it's just that digital isn't a different kind of marketing it just is marketing like hello mm-hmm. everything is digital if you kind of break it down like or most things um so essentially it's not like a contest between digital and not digital it's not even a contest it's just what stuff do your buyers and customers need to do? What do they want to do? Where do they go? How do you know them and sort of be an anthropologist and understand their journey? And know that much of it will take place on properties that have nothing to do with you, engaging with content you didn't create. Right,
0: Um, that's digital too. they
1: will curate themselves. Yes, and then it will be online.
0: Got it, it's online, it's digital it may be your own assets. It may not be, but it, it is an online thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point, I love you saying, you know, digital is marketing. It's not like we're, it's like some awful off, offline online battle. It's like people are doing the research online. Uh, now, are you then saying that is that where that it came from? Because if two thirds is digital and digital equals marketing, are we saying two thirds of it is marketing?
1: Hmm, interesting. I you know you, you, that's a very logical argument, but the answer to that is no. It's actually sort of 50-50 sales-led and marketing-led tactics, if you want to look at it that way. At least the data that I've seen over many years okay. um, has said that a preponderance, or, or there, that, pardon me, an equal split at all stages, by the way, early, middle, and late. It's not even just like there's a, a more digital upfront and less later. Nope. It's kind of a 50 50 split. Now, the interesting question will be given our current situation, mm-hmm. um, how m- more of that will be digital by default? True. So, how well are we doing adapting and creating ways to fulfill the non digital needs that customers have that they used to get from going to events, they used to get from meetings, they used to get from community engagement, um, you know, offline and online community engagement? Um, what are we doing to help them recapture some of those offline, you know, that 50% of experiences that's not digital now, it, but it's interesting. It's like if 67% of the journey is digital, but it's a kind of a 50, 50 split sales and marketing led, I think what you see is a good portion, even of what sales brings to the table ends up being digital too. Right.
0: Yeah. Email contact, yeah, exactly. all that, yeah,
2: exactly.
0: It's not office visits and stuff every yeah. time, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And then, what are their their non needs? I was talking to um Max um, from Outreach, and um, just the idea that um, you know, you need to build trust, but we can't do that right now. We can't be, you know, from the sales, ha- you know, sales hacker perspective, can't be shaking hands and kissing babies right now. <laughs> yeah you don't have a face mask on like you, you can't do that so to your point like how do we make up for that non-digital part um it's interesting and i you know I, video you know can only go so far because i've been meeting with people all day for weeks on zoom but somehow i really just want to hang out with any and all of you at the gas station down the street i would be happy with that <laughs> like we can keep our distance whatever but like let's Somewhere, please hang out. You know, yeah. Zoom can only go. The digital can only go so far. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: we just have to start thinking. Like, what is it that builds trust? What is yeah. it that makes us, you know, want to hang out and want to, you know, when all this is is um, back to whatever will pass for normal? You know, some like when we can hang out. What's going right. to make us want to make that effort? And I think it's, you know, it, it comes down to thinking about, okay, well, people trust what other people say. Yeah. So are you, you know, making sure that you're introducing, you know, your prospects to your customers? Are you bringing in great customer evidence, customer stories? Mm. Um, are you just part of a community? So people see you and they're like, Oh, that person has some street cred. Like they actually hang out and talk about stuff that I care about. Yeah. Um, and have clearly some knowledge and passion for it. So I should believe that they have something useful to tell me. Um, you know, or am I squandering it? And am I just like sending random LinkedIn saying, please connect with me. And I'm like, who are you? And no, <laughs> you
0: yeah. gosh, I hate that. It's the worst that, I mean, there's always people doing bad marketing. I guess that's what makes us look good, but people like the LinkedIn spam. And you know, I got one the other day um, and I get this email and I recognized the last name because it was the husband of the wife who connected with me on LinkedIn like the day prior. Uh, and i was like are you kidding me and it had his name on the email so i called him it was like monday morning and i wasn't mean because I, I, it's hard for me to be mean but um i was definitely not happy and i was like hey i'm one of the guys you spammed and that was no bueno and i really don't like you he's like well what do you want i was like if you do not email me <laughs> take yeah. me off blocked his wife it, like there's a, i'll never they won't even find me on linkedin anymore like i'm dead to them it's like, don't burn those bridges for some cheap tactic, you know?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I just tend to ignore those because I know probably like somebody is telling that person, oh, you've got to try and connect with this person. Yeah. But oh, for goodness sake, give them better advice then.
0: Yeah. Give them way better advice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I should be ignoring them, but just sometimes I just can't.
1: Once you know. in a while, you get one that's like way beyond the pale. And we used to get test ones too, to see if we were falling for like fake LinkedIn's security wise and yeah jobs and and that was smart too because once but i mean i have to say some of the fake ones were like really <laughs> like if i fell yeah. for that you have a whole other problem
0: <laughs> right you know i actually got a the worst one i ever got and i actually screenshot it and um and i put it in a presentation i have on deliverability and it, it no kidding came from like an analyst it wasn't serious wasn't um nice. but we were like and I didn't even realize, but but the email broke so many rules. And the thing was like, hello, my name is so and so. I am actually sending you this message right now. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, we're all in marketing. Okay. I know you're not doing that right now. I know this is like a group email. And the next thing was like, we have reviewed your website and have a couple ideas for you. Like, I know you didn't just now review my website. Um, and, it, and it was just like three lies right in a row at the very top of it. And I actually called guy left a voicemail for him to be like, "Hey, this is a terrible." I didn't say that yet. but I was like, oh, "I love to connect and see." Like, is this a joke? Like, <laughs> you're you're an analyst, and um, but he was on vacation, so I couldn't connect with him. But yeah, it's those ah. things. It's like if I wish people would give better advice on these tactics. Yeah, because
1: it's I mean that is like the hardest job in the world. You know, I, I feel for BDRs right now. Oh my gosh, like that's so hard. You have to pick up that phone knowing that maybe it won't be somebody nice like you on the other end of the phone that it could be somebody who's just had lord only knows what thrown at them and they're going to take it out on you You yeah if i mean they're just going to be rude you just don't know how many times you're just not going to get anywhere it's really hard but at the same time um i've seen also some really really good um interesting and creative outreach um Mm. and especially when you know, they've got something thoughtful to say about things that I might care about from a business perspective. Um, I think, you know, there's some good work now, I think, but the other kind of rotten piece of that is, even if you have that right, even if you've done a beautiful job doing your homework, I still might not respond, because I'm just not in market for your solution. Right. Um, but I'm hearing some evidence right now that in some cases, though, people are at least saying that, like they're saying, hey, Thanks. This was a thoughtful message. I'm just not buying anything or my budget's frozen until whenever, you know, that kind of thing. Um, right. so maybe we're all just being a little kinder, but I, you know, I I feel for the folks on those front lines too.
0: You know, I as a marketer, I'd like uh, punitive action. So when I get spam, I love reporting it as spam because I'm like I I, I am you and I know better. Don't do this. Um yeah. But I will say I would love a LinkedIn message that was, like, well thought and considered. I'd probably even take the call. Um, uh, like, please, my name is Casey Cheshire. Find me on LinkedIn. Send me a, a well-written, hello, hello. Uh, we, we know all about your things. we listened to nine episodes of your podcast, and we bought your book, and we want to X, Y, and Z. Yes, here's my link. Let's do this thing. But yeah, I, I haven't gotten that. But to your point, the people that do that, that's the real win, and that shines when they, when they take that extra effort. Yeah, but it's
1: not easy. It's
0: not. It's so, not. And then that's
1: something I think marketers can get better at right now is helping mm. people do that well and giving them the fodder to make it happen faster.
0: Yes. You know, what kind of trends have you seen? I, I know you've done some work on the companies that grow versus the companies that don't. And, like, there's some winning attitudes, there's some, some winning strategies. What, what, what does the data show?
1: Yeah, and, and I'll say this is, um, you know, pre-2020.
0: Right. So,
2: oh,
1: all, sure. you know, so, so I think that's, there may be some important differences in next year's go around to this, but um, and, and uh, when I was at, this is, I'll give a shout out to my friends at, at serious decisions slash Forrester um, mm-hmm. who've done some really cool work in this area Um, in the emerging growth strategies practice, just terrific work. Um, and they took a look at companies that were growing at 40% a year versus those that weren't.
2: Okay.
1: And I think most of the time when we think about companies that are growing at 40, 60, 100% a year, you know, you, you picture, I don't know about you, I picture like people running around like crazy and just like doing whatever they can and, and putting on fires and, and just trying to execute as much as possible as quickly as possible, you know, with yeah. all that great money. Um yeah. the interesting reality. Oh, and by the way, heavy focus then on the top of the funnel, like
0: just more and more and more like, yeah, here's my fleece blanket. Let me scan you a dream force.
1: Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, That's what you want to think it is. Not the case. Mm. Those 40% plus a year companies thought and planned more around designing their tech stack. So they are acquiring technology in a thoughtful way to help them with their mission they're in general doing more planning you know it's not like shoot first and ask questions later it's like no we're you know going to and they don't you know my my anecdotal observation is they also don't spend like half the year trying to build a plan right <laughs> they just you know they they set some goals and they start to work against them and then they adjust them as they change which they invariably do um but there is at least some mindfulness there um to use the current term intentionality right mm-hmm. to that work um And then the other thing that's kind of cool that I love is those companies invest earlier in customer marketing and customer success, right? Mm. So you think of companies growing that fast as all about acquiring customers, but in fact, the ones that grow the fastest know that it is about acquiring and keeping customers. Got and it. that's your ultimate sort of virtuous cycle, flywheel, choose your favorite analogy. But you, know, you win them and then you keep them. And hopefully you turn them into raving fans who tell more people about how awesome you are um, and you deliver something to them that they can't live without and that's how you grow like crazy. But you focus on the post-sale piece of it in a meaningful way earlier
0: as a company yeah why don't we do that? I have no idea I really don't we're very <laughs> demand lead gen type get them in boys and girls and let's sell them in sales and then it's like nothing and then cust the, i mean customer support i mean that's like a different usually it's a different functionality where they're they're trying to keep the individual transaction happy or something that's not necessarily the success team to ongoingly look at the whole thing and market yeah it's weird it's like a gap
1: i mean and and as customers right we can all 100 percent relate
2: like Mm -hmm.
1: buy something and it doesn't work the way you want it to it's super frustrating it's disappointing um sometimes it's even embarrassing because you're trying to use this thing and it's like falling down in front of your manager or you know you're trying to like justify the investment you made and you can't because because nobody wanted to use it. I mean, oh, yikes, that's ugly. And I think it's also that we are pretty transactional historically about customer service, exactly what you said. Um, I love the way that many customer success organizations are really picking that up as a mission. And they're really thinking about themselves as, as, you know, a continuation of that journey. Like how do we make good on the promise? Um, I think there's still more work to be done for companies to start to sort of understand, okay, here's what's really hard for our customers and here's how we always make it better. Um, I've been talking to folks lately about the you know, the product led growth concept and companies mm-hmm. that sort of grow that way.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. And all the really super fast growing companies um that that are that model, like a Slack or others, right? That just have really said, Hey, our ability to grow is based on delivering something that customers love right? And that like grows itself, that markets itself because it's so great. Um, that takes a really good understanding of your customer and their needs and their journey, and you right. never let up on it. And that's, you know, and it doesn't have to be a product led growth per se. It doesn't have to just be a software product, any product, right? Anything you sell, are you making it as good and as easy to use as possible as meaningful to that person's day as possible? Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're not, why not? Like what's holding you back?
2: Right.
0: What would you say you, you identify you're listening to this amazing podcast with these two amazing people on it. And then you're (laughs) like, Oh no, I've given so much thought to nurturing all these different things other than, or not even nurturing marketing to all these other people. I've completely neglected customers, and there's so much goodies I can get there. Yeah. Is there a first step you'd take to sort of rectify that problem to start fixing that and addressing it?
1: Yeah, I'd first figure out who do you need to be talking to. Right, it starts and okay. and this is something like we're pretty good at on the pre-sale side of identifying. Gosh, who you know who are our buyer personas? Well, guess what? You get to do the same thing for customers. Who are my customer personas? And most of the time, um, many companies just think of that as as an end user, um, but it probably isn't just an end user. There's that end user's manager, maybe,
2: uh-huh. and
1: then there's um, the you know the, the executive in the company who may have been part of making that decision or may have to justify it again. Mm-hmm. Um, And also if you want to have your company's brand and experience sort of be understood by more senior people, you've got to keep them in mind and speak to them if it's appropriate to your product. I mean, if it has nothing to do with them, then that's a different thing, but they're not one of your personas then. But if it's, you know, if it's kind of a a thing where executives need to know your company and you need to have um, a pretty good network within the organization as most B2B companies do, sit down and figure out what those roles are. Right. And then think about, okay, and how am I doing at helping them? What am I doing to help them, you know? And journey mapping does not have to be like, I used to do some scary giant journey mapping projects okay. that took months and months and terrified people, but they were good. <laughs> they right. just took a really long time. Most companies, especially high growth companies, don't really want to spend that time and maybe they don't even have a journey that's that complicated.
2: Mm-hmm. There's
1: ways to make it easy, but do it at that personal level and say, okay, let, fine, let's start with the end user. What yep. happens the minute after they buy the the inks you know dry on the docu you sign yep. now what
2: right you
1: just start there and then have everybody who's involved in helping that customer get together and walk through if i'm in, if I'm the customer what happens to me but just make sure you keep that customer hat on and even spending a couple of hours on right after somebody buys what happens you'll find a couple of things that you could do differently and better most likely um but then um this the, the other piece is once you get through sort of the initial, they just signed up and they're onboarded, that's when the real problems begin. Because most of the time then the poor customer, it's like, good luck to them. You don't do anything to help them. Mm -hmm. Um, or you provide standard documentation and, and go find, you know, whatever you need, or I'll talk to my customer success person, but you're not sort of mindfully guiding them through that journey and the things that they could do to be successful. And you're not engaging their boss and their boss's boss with like, Hey, here's what your team's doing. They're great. There's so many different things that you can be doing. Um, to help in the post-onboarding. I'll call it the ongoing stages. Huh. And and again, just like mapping it out, what would help somebody get value? And how do we know if they're going off the rails? And how do we know if they're like really on the rails and they could maybe help other customers do great things by sharing their story? There's so many good things, all, but it just takes a little bit of time for a lot of benefit.
0: Right. And the companies that are growing are mindful of this and they're mindful of who. And I can see how, I mean, it brings up a great point. I mean, marketers really need to make sure they have personas in the first place for their buyers but then that may change that person that signs that check may not really be involved and there may be a new person that wasn't really part of that that committee or even that decision that now is either the end user or or some other part some other player and just understanding what kind of experience they're going to have can go a long way to getting five more customers from that one referral 100%,
1: right? That's, the, that's what the product-led growth movement sort of says, right? Is, yeah. is that if you get more people to be like, wow, this is great. I need that. Right. Um, you know, and I'm telling two friends, like, there you go. There's, you know, the best kind of marketing you can buy. And by the way, customers want content, online experiences. They want events. Right. They want all those great things that marketing does. They want community engagement. Um, marketing's just fantastic at that. Yeah. And we don't always apply our toolkit in that way, but we're so good at it, we should.
0: Marketing is freaking awesome. Um, we just got to make sure we keep our our audience in mind, our customer persona. I, I would, I could not let you get out of here without giving me your what's your take take on ABM, the practical, down and dirty, sleeves rolled up. Um, you've worked at um, you know a SaaS provider of solutions for it. Like, what is it really? Buzzwords aside, all that stuff aside, what is ABM really? Honestly, I think it's
1: just being realistic about who you should be selling to. Got it. Right? And I see a lot of target account lists that I would consider to be more wishful thinking
2: <laughs>
1: than reality. And I know how they end up that way. And I and I understand that. And, and that's fine. But, <laughs> you know, um, hoping does not make it happen always. Right. And I think that's where companies can be really mindful about Who are truly the best folks to buy our solution? And it may be the case that they don't know they should be buying our solution yet. And that's fine. And that's a different style of marketing and selling. Um, But at least we have to be realistic about why we're putting them on the list and how hard or easy it's going to be to win them over and how much and what we can know about them to make that work better for them and for us. Yeah. But it's just like, be real, you know, as my old boss at Sirius used to say, the Fortune 500 is not a segment.
2: <laughs> that's <laughs> a good point.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, that's our target. Yeah, we're just going to go after those guys. Uh, great. Meeting adjourned. We're just going to go after those guys. It's so much more than that. Yeah. Any
1: software company. Um. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, and it's just, and the, the the thing that makes that scary then is then there's just so much inefficiency and in you're selling and your marketing and the beautiful thing. And I think what people sort of gravitated to in the early days of AVM, but that's still kind of the promise of it is it just makes your life so much easier. Once you say who you're trying to engage, then, you know, I always used to say it's a math problem and a personality test. Right the math problem is like okay here's the right. whatever 2000 companies that we believe we should be selling to right and now here are the five people in them or the five roles if I don't know the actual people that I need to get to to make right. that happen right okay then there's my plan and I know if that's going to be a new sale I don't even know if it's going to be cross sell I know if it's going to be upselling all those things like it just becomes, that's the math problem part and right. the personality test is knowing what those people care about and what their needs are and how you can make them successful and what things that they're trying to accomplish and, and you know, whatever else you want to know about them. And, mm-hmm. and that's the art part of it. And then you combine those two things and that's a way more fun way to spend the day than the fortune 500.
0: <laughs> right. Because your success yeah. will be there and that's fun. And you can point to that and you can keep doing more of that. Um, makes total sense. All
2: day. All day.
0: <laughs> All day. 24 seven people. This marketing train does not stop it doesn't have to. around the clock (laughs) hey where is this all going what 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 do you i know the future is kind of hard to think about even for myself i'm like in covid right now i'm thinking where's the first place i'm going when i'm getting out in here but like where is the marketing going What, what happens when we get out of here do you do you see anything what's your predictions in terms of you know anything coming around we should take keep our eyes open for or watch out for
1: Um, I think we're going to continue to see sort of a bigger and bigger difference between the companies who take advantage of what it's possible to know about their prospects and customers and companies that don't, right? Mm. So those completely tone deaf or random and generic messages that we're all getting, um, contrast those with the quality ones, with the people whose calls you do take, going to be real obvious who's doing their homework and who isn't because it's so much easier to do your homework now. I mean, between first party data, third party data, um, tools that serve that up in a beautiful and simple way and can deliver that right to your inbox every morning and say, here's who's engaging and here's what they care about and here's wow. what they're doing, um, combined with all the information that we could be pulling together about you know, what we could talk to them about. All the great customer stories we could be pulling, you know, those those differences will be very obvious. Um, and I also think companies really can't hide behind not paying attention to experience and product quality. That gets found out way too easily. It's just so transparent, right? What what works and what doesn't? Who makes good on their promises and who doesn't? So you know, even if buyers feel like, wow, you know, people can know an awful lot about me, is that creepy? Um, well. Maybe, you know, I think we can all have reason to want to protect our own privacy, but as business people too, I think there's a certain level of that that you give up when you're working for a business so that people can see a lot, right? So, okay. So if that's knowable, but it gets used to make my life easier and better. Bring it on. (laughs) Yeah, great. Like, and it'll be clear um, who's doing that. And I think companies that don't follow the lead of those 40% plus growth companies and invest in a great post sale experience and mm. helping companies truly get value. That's going to be obvious too. Cause I mean, one of the questions I heard all the time was what are you going to replace in my tech stack? Mm. Right.
2: What goes away? Yeah.
1: Yep. What, am, cause I've already got so many tools. Like what's yours bringing in the table? and And I'm already not getting value from half of them, so and, and if I'm God forbid, I'm one of the half of them, right? And, and I'm one of the ones that are like, "Why would I renew? I'm not getting anything. No one's using it. Right. Well, shame on me if I don't know that till the end of the contract, and that's going to be obvious too, because people are going to have challenging budget situations for the foreseeable future, oh, for and sure. that means the bar for quality and engagement is way higher, and that means companies who haven't been paying attention to it hmm that that's not so good.
0: right yeah you know it you're right the, some of the spending is is slowing down a friend of mine uh, louis Gudima, on linkedin i don't know if you know him he has um sort of a boston marketing breakfast he's kind of a thought leader he's got a he's got a book out and everything um really cool guy um he, he wrote that he surveyed you know customers his tribe or his list of marketers and something like 56 of them have said that there's some kind of freeze on spending, whether it's indefinite or one month or three months. And I, I commented and I said, um, how much money to give me a list of the people, the other 44% who <laughs> haven't suspended anything. Great. Bring them on. <laughs> give me that list. I want to know who's uh, still spending. Uh, but you're right. You need to know that. And I love how you said that, you know, shame on us. If, if we don't know, if we're not listening until you've just not renewed and we're like, cause that's too late. You don't fix things. when People have already committed to the decision of saying, I'm out. And you, you might be able to pull a couple percent back off the edge. But if they've made that, they may have already gone down the cycle with the, with the alternative. So you're just sort of being informed. By the way, we're breaking up. Like, that's not the time to work on your relationship. Uh, you need to be listening and actively working with people um, before that. And there's
1: so much great technology out there. You know, Mm. that's what AI, conversational marketing, and all these things, like there's so many ways to make that so much easier, so much more cost-effective, to feed it with great data. Like it's just bringing all those pieces together, I think is, it takes some help and companies need to have some guidance for how to do it. Um, But it is doable and that kind of vision of an optimized customer experience pre and post sale with you know technology, technology maybe it'll blow that sixty-seven percent out of the water. Maybe it'll you know it'll end up being way higher than that down the road. Um, with sellers engaging you know via digital means, if you know depending on sort of how how long things continue as they are. But um, all those technologies make that easier and more effective um, as right. long as we embrace them and we bring our humanity to them.
0: Right. Yeah. The humanity side so huge. You you mentioned the customer stories earlier. Um, what makes a great customer story? Huh, that it's not about a product, <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs>
1: right? Um, and, and I know I'm I am not necessarily in the majority opinion on this one. So I, I suspect if you asked, you know, a bunch of great marketing leaders, you know, who thought about this a lot, we'd have different opinions on this one. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll share my perspective.
2: But those
0: great marketing um, leaders aren't on the show. They're just,
1: yeah, you know, well. They, hey then they get their turn and they can say what they think but,
0: well, um, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll take their word for it if they're ever on the show but until then they're just their second <laughs> yeah. there
1: you go um but you know it's like make it about the other person because everybody's got a great story to tell and your job then as the person helping them tell that story is to make it about their story. The minute you start going into the list of questions about, tell me how fabulous our product or solution is. Mm. Tell me what results you got from our solution. You're going to make your story really right. super boring. And you're going to take all the passion out of the person telling the story. Now, once mm. in a while, you will got somebody who um, will make that sing as well. But most of the time, I think when you invite somebody to just talk about What was the cool project you were on? Or what was the hard problem that your boss told you you needed to solve? Now tell me, like, what did you do? Tell me about who on your team really helped you or tell me about if there were, you know, products or or solution partners who helped you do it. Great. And if you want to talk about that, if not, whatever, you know, talk about your dog. I don't care, but tell me who helped you and how they helped. Tell me about the people who got in the way or the problems that got in the way. What made that hard? You know, every story needs a villain you know, what made it hard. Um, and then, you know, give them that chance to, to like tell you about how they reached the promised land and how they got to that great outcome and what it felt like.
2: Um,
1: and you can encourage them to measure that too, right? Say, so what numbers did you have to put in front of the CEO to win that award? Right. You know, (laughs) um, but there's ways to get what you need as a product marketer or, or as a person trying to get to an outcome for your brand. Yeah. But I think personally, you get there better every time by just asking people to make themselves the star of the story and helping them do that.
0: Yeah, make them the star of it. That's really, I love, um, i probably say I love a lot. Um, Every story needs a villain. As you were describing it, that sounds like a real story. As I'm thinking about sometimes the things that I think of as customer stories is like, look how great we are here's some data points. And you're like, yeah, I assumed it would be some fluff piece question for you. We were working on one right now at Chess, yeah. And um, we there was a, you know, customer that had part we do part on all day, every day. Right. And have part and they're like, man, it's, a, it's like working, I guess. Um, how, could you help us out? And, and somehow we swooped in and we worked together. And then I think they saw like some double digit growth in leads and things, things got better. How do you how do you make that not about like Cheshire Impact? Or like how do you make that not about me, more about them? Do you you know what's your how would you sort of like write that? Or yeah, what kind well, of things would you ask to fill in the details?
1: I'd probably ask them to go back and talk more about what made them say, eh. It's okay. (laughs) You know, tell me why. Like, what things did you wish it would do? What things did you feel like you couldn't do? Or what things weren't you doing? And very often that'll get people to start being kind of thoughtful about. Well, you know what, actually it goes back to, we probably didn't choose our target account list as well as we could have. And so therefore we were sending stuff out to all of these people and we didn't know if they cared or not. And most of them didn't, you know, no surprise. Right. Or, you know, whatever outcome you might get to, but, but get them to dig into the challenge a little more. And then that starts to help you get your story arc, find that villain. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds like actually, you know, one of the things that was kind of a problem for you is this. So tell me about how you started to think of ways that you could solve it. And now one of those solutions could be, you know what, we actually kind of hit a brick wall and we really didn't know. So we reached out to you because we heard you guys were great and we asked you for help. You know, you can you can go all over on them and just start saying, so what did it feel like to ask for help? Like, was that comfortable for you? Was that hard for you? Like, how could we have made that better? How, you know, what things about it were good? Like, just keep asking about the experience and, and ask about how people felt. Um, yeah. But I do think you also have to get to some of those numbers. Like that's, that's probably one of the things, um, especially when I was looking at all the amazing award submissions that we would get at Serious Decisions every year before our big event, the summit. And um, first of all, it was just an honor that people like raised their hand and put the time in to fill those out. Yeah. And second of all, it was amazing to see the things they were doing. But I would say the thing that very often we would need to help people refine and get more from was the data. Um, so I also think if you've got a client that you're like, wow, our, you know, customer, whether we're your product or for you guys yourself, you know, or whether it's for yeah. somebody else, like when you're beginning with that customer, I always say, take a before picture. Yeah. Right. You got to know how ugly the house looked to know that yeah. it was beautiful after you put in the gorgeous landscaping. Like, right. You know, and so always get the before picture, even if it's painful or embarrassing, (laughs) like say, listen, you're going to love me later because I'm going to make you look so good in front of your boss because you're going to be able to show them and the things that were not good, um, not throwing them under the bus for creating the results, of course, just saying, here's what it is. And then saying okay, over time, let's look at how we're tracking in terms of improving some of those numbers. And maybe you even need to encourage them to look at some different numbers that maybe they're not today. But if you do that earlier in your cycle with the customer, then six months, three months even down the road, you're gonna have some nice evidence to point Mm -hmm. to and so will they.
0: Right. So will they, if it can help them out too. I think that makes a big difference. This is something that they would be proud to have
1: yeah. I mean, and if we all start with that in mind, right, what's going to make your customer proud? What's going to get them promoted? Like that was one of my favorite outcomes. My first year of starting the serious decisions account-based marketing practice back, oh my gosh, like eight years ago or some crazy number. Wow, you um, started it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I did, um, but I had help. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that um, we as a team were most proud of is within a couple of years of launching that practice, so many of our first clients got promoted and won internal awards
2: wow because
1: the work wow. they were doing was so good and and you know sure we were there coaching part of it was these were just really smart motivated you know people who got it and did great work mm-hmm. and it got recognized but I mean, how cool is that? If you're a coach and you watch the people that you're coaching, like win and, you know, get to whatever the playoffs are, like That's you're going to cool. be pretty happy. Yeah. And that was, that was just so amazing to see that outcome. But it was because it had to be about them. Like, what's going to get you promoted? Even just asking people that, what's going to get you promoted? Right. I got the answer, right? And even in a sales process, that can be a great question.
0: I love it. Yeah. I, we should ask more about that. We we need to be less self-centered and more, you know, other centric and thinking about our customer more and more. Um, and as you said, the sky, the skies are in, or the, the sky is the limit when it comes to these kind of things and thinking about the, the customer and the process. My question really now is like, who are you? Can you take us back, back in time? Like, you know, little Megan days, um, what was it like growing up? Like, you know, did you always know you're going to be in marketing? What was it like? And, you know, talk us through some of the, the big points.
1: Yeah. You know what? I honestly thought I was going to be a journalist, like probably from about fifth grade ish on. Yeah. Um, I mean, always like, I look and look back at like writing I did when I was like six and the spelling actually still is kind of atrocious if I'm honest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But I definitely it's in creative spelling back then, but I've always loved to write. Um, So I kind of figured I'd end up with something in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, um, I thought I was gonna be a journalist, and I think it was partly because I've always really loved interviewing people and telling their stories, like hearing what they're working on, just kind of what we were just talking about, right, is, is yeah. some of those same skills. Um, and I, uh, I was you know, the editor of the paper in high school, and, and when I was at UConn, you know, I was an English major, so I did a lot of writing, but I wasn't a journalism major. Somewhere in the back of my head must have been, this probably isn't gonna end well for me if I'm a journalism yeah. major. Um, but I'll uh, a spoiler alert in this story, um, <laughs> and actually had the honor of being the news editor at the Daily Campus at UConn, which is, okay. goes out to 20, well, it did at that time, went out to 20,000 people a day,
2: which really? was really cool.
1: Like, Jeez. literally oh, had to drive at four o'clock in the morning with the newspaper and drop it off at the printer, <laughs> Evan help really? us. Yep, um, and yeah, laid out the pages, and you just you know you had literally every single day. Well, not weekends because well, it was UConn, and you know, that's, like, that's, that's
0: a crazy. big publication then to be that yeah. frequent.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had twenty people on my reporting team. No kidding, news editor. Yeah, um, which makes you question their judgment really at that time, <laughs> but but well, uh, it was fun. Yeah. Um, loved every minute of it. But here's the interesting thing: is um, throughout that time. I did get to work with a lot of the people who were journalism majors and who were just really, really talented investigative reporters. Like they would go to a meeting at whatever crazy, you know, department in the university and they would come out with like, you know, Watergate and (laughs) I wouldn't, you know, um, I always want to see the good in things. I always want to tell a happy story. Right. Um, And I always loved doing more like feature work and highlighting people's great accomplishments or challenges or struggles or just interesting human stories. And there's a place for that in journalism. But, um, you know, I, I, what I recognize from the people that were on my team that were super good at it is I did not have their killer instinct for mm. the story. And like that desire to go do the skullduggery, it's just not my thing.
0: Instinct um, people, you know. Yeah.
1: Leave, leave. And I, But I loved writing and I loved, you know, being thoughtful about the issues and doing the research and doing all that sort of thing. So, you know, I stayed on the path. And about halfway through my senior year, I was like, oh, I shouldn't be a journalist,
2: <laughs> right? So, oh,
1: so, I, and that was that was an interesting moment to sort of figure that out. Was it actually um, a
2: moment, or was it sort of? Yeah, a sort it kind of
1: was. It kind of yeah. was. Like, I, I think I got to a place where I was like, this is not the path I want to take because they, my my colleagues then were all so excited about competing for a job at the Hartford Courant, Danbury News Times, or you know, all these great papers. I was like. Yeah, I that no, that just doesn't sound like I'm not really
0: excited by that.
1: Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's not good, because they're gonna have to fight tooth and nail to win those jobs. And I don't even want to fight like, (laughs) (laughs) no way I'm gonna win. So anyway, there was that. Um, so that was a moment where I kind of had to like pause and reflect and come up with a plan B. Um, uh, so, of course, upon graduating, I took the first job that came my way, um, which, lucky for me, was running marketing at a very fancy boat building company outside of Newport, Rhode Island. Mm. Which was just miserable really when you're twenty two to live in Newport. It was just awful.
2: <laughs> oh, Newport. Oh yeah. No, I see
1: kidding. it. Yeah. It was really fun.
2: Um, was and I got to put
1: out a beautiful magazine and sell yacht charters and very fancy parties and vacations and corporate events on boats and all that sort of thing. And and um, so I learned a lot of selling actually. That's a mighty it's a competitive market, you wouldn't think, but it is a competitive My market. Idea. Um, in, in addition to doing some marketing. Um, but it was a small family run company. And, and unless somebody died, I wasn't getting a promotion. So um, I didn't wish anyone ill. So I had to get a grown up job. Right. Um, so of course, I decided to go be a consultant at Gartner. Oh, of course. Because <laughs> that makes any sense. whatsoever. Like, that's,
0: that's a crazy transition, though, to go from just the, the yacht parties to uh, Gartner
1: yeah well that writing and reporting to the rescue right because this is in the early 90s when Mm -hmm. Gartner was just growing like mad and um lo and behold a lot of the skills you need to be a good analyst a good consultant and I went into the consulting group not the analyst group at that point um are doing research interviewing figuring out what makes sense and what doesn't, um, getting, you know, really great information from mm-hmm. experts. And oh, by the way, they actually hired me initially as an editor to go through every single piece of information that left the consulting group. Because if you don't have quality control, well, bad things happen when you're moving very fast and you're yeah. putting things in front of CIOs and they have spelling mistakes.
0: Right. 67 so, could turn into 80%. <laughs> yeah.
1: So a funny thing happens when you read every single last piece of work that comes out of a consulting organization, you start to learn something. And it was so early in the technology days. So kind of like rapid fire training course. And then um, the kind of lower level work of a consultant looks a lot like journalism. It looks a lot like reporting. It's fact finding and interviewing. Um, And those skills just got me on a great track there. And I learned to be a consultant and had wonderful people that I worked with and um, learned a ton about the technology industry and just had no business probably working on some of the great projects I did, but it was a wonderful experience. And, and that, you know, that sort of took me forward understanding two things. Um, you know, one is I could get paid for stuff that I didn't think I could get paid for that I was Mm -hmm. good at, like writing and interviewing and solving problems. Um, and two is, um, that, you know, you know, if you don't start to have some of those great credentials, you're not going to move up. <laughs> so mm. that's when I went back to school from there, realizing if I was going to follow a path in, um, in consulting, and in, in I did all B2B, even then it was all B2B. Um, if I was going to follow that path, I needed to get an MBA, not just an, an English degree. So back to school, um, so that I'd have the MBA after my name, which was a wonderful experience and, and actually really got to, um, take advantage of the program that I was part of, had a wonderful entrepreneurship strategy and technology component. Oh, neat. It was very cool. Yeah. So got to kind of create my own path there, which then, you know, took me back to different roles in consulting and being a practitioner and those kinds of things. But it kind of just goes back to some of those same skills, right. Of, of just being curious and asking questions and wanting to solve problems. You know, that's, if that's stuff you're good at, you know, people will keep you busy.
0: Man, there's something magical. And you, you highlighted it. The idea of you reading all of the different papers and findings and report research Um, you as the editor, you getting that cross pollination across everything. It's, you know, it's kind of like the podcast today or, or the person editing the podcast today, just hearing all this wisdom and gaining all, it's amazing, right? And um, yeah, I could see how that, you would become an expert in a very short time just because you've dotted the I's on all these papers. You you know them.
1: Well, and, and had to interview the analysts who came up with the brilliant research and the consultants who were working with the client and sitting in on all those interviews. So not only were you reading sort of the output of it, but you got to see the input right how you arrived at those conclusions and the things Ah,
0: the the context for it yeah yeah. okay and
1: and the definitions and the language and all that stuff i mean that was just such a gift at that point in my career and super fun too and gosh those folks were really really smart like (laughs) it was fun to hang out with them
0: that's good though you want to be the person that doesn't feel like the smartest person in the room it's like opposite logic you know it's it's great not being that the smartest person in the room because you can just learn from everyone
1: Yeah. Well, I always liked what somebody said to me. I don't know who came up with this to begin with. Sounds like a Steve Martin kind of thing, but you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room.
0: Ah, there you go. Right. (laughs) Yep. Ah, Totally. So, so you just sort of just started this. Now you're, now you're a consultant and you just started to advise different companies and, and grow and take on more challenges from there. Yeah,
1: you know, I've kind of come full circle. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's sort of um, I I feel like I I got to a place in my career. I I had a you know wonderful experience at. Um, serious decisions, you know, starting as an early employee there, helping them grow that that business to, you know, the point where Forrester acquired it and, and, you know, sort of seeing how um, that acquisition integration process worked and getting to know the great folks at Forrester and, and then, you know, sort of getting a hankering to going back to being a practitioner and spent some time doing that. Um, But, but, you know, I think this moment that we're all in right now where Mm. we're all kind of at home and, um, maybe getting to spend a little bit more time being introspective and, and thinking about sort of the greater world and, and the role that we want to have in it and what we do and don't miss and what things we like to do um, and sort of what's important in life in general, <laughs> right? This is just a great moment that we're all hopefully getting some of that from. Um, and I feel kind of lucky that that's where I'm at right now. And, and I've kind of gone back and I said, what do I love to do? Um, You know, growing up, my dad was an architect, and Mm. he loved his work. It just made him so happy. Like, he would lose himself in his work. Um, And I always had that example of someone who just, like, got so much out of their day. They just thought this was cool. He didn't even care if he got paid. He just liked doing the work. Yes. I find I'm a little more commercial than he was, but um, <laughs> at the same I want to get paid. <laughs> yeah. Come on, let's go.
2: Like,
1: Come on, a I, 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 girl got to eat, you know. Right. But um, at the same time, um, I've always had that knowledge that you could truly love what you do, and that's so I was like, all right, well, what do I love doing? And it goes back to some of those same things from you know, little Megan, right? Loving to write. Like I love yeah. to write. I love to solve problems. I love to help people. I love to tell stories, um, and when i think about some of the work that i'm really proud of too a lot of it is around helping companies do things differently and better but also painting a pretty clear picture for them of how to do it
2: right. because
1: you know a lot of people are like oh i want to do you know i need my customers to renew at a higher rate okay mm-hmm. that's a great goal how are you going to get there and when you start you know one of the things that i can do, and like to do is break down those big, big crazy goals into a series of reasonable steps mm-hmm. and then help people feel very empowered, encouraged, and supported in achieving them. Right. You know, and, and that's ultimately what a good consultant does. So I'm really looking at kind of going back to my roots, if you will. You know, as much as it would be lovely to, to go in the Yacht charter direction, I think that's probably off the table for now. So we'll, we'll think Combine more the about team, you know, the you consulting
2: know? direction. Combine <laughs> the two, yeah. Yahtzee, yeah.
0: that'll
2: be yeah. awesome. But uh,
1: uh, Anyway, so that's, that's how I ended up here. And now I'm really just trying to help companies that aren't sure how to make some of the changes they know they need to make with yeah. customer acquisition, customer engagement, customer retention, um, and just how to sort of help them through that work.
0: Yeah, and I think the idea of someone you like you to be able to come in with that wealth of knowledge, look, like people can figure it out. It'll just take them yeah. however long it takes them. Like, you know, like you you could, you know, spend eight years, you know, trying to invent this on your own and you might you might actually do it or or a year even or you work with someone who has been there, done that, seen that, and seen all the different research points across thousands of companies all compiled into some real strong best practices. It's like a no brainer. Skip, skip the crawl on the walk and get right to a run. It's like, yeah.
1: Yeah, sure. It's, it's possible. It's definitely possible. And there's just so many, you know, smart people out there who've thought about these problems for a really mm-hmm. long time. And, and I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of them. Um, and that's, you know, the, benefit of that then is I get to take the things that I love the most from each of those teachers and each of those experiences and hopefully yeah. put them into something that's practical and not scary.
2: Right.
0: Well, one, one question um, I dying to ask you then, um, cause it's like a thousand. So we'll have to just have you come back on, you know, post COVID to kind of update us on what, what else you're seeing. But um, one question I have for you now would be if you could go back in time in a time machine, which I may have in Nashua, New Hampshire, um, and and advise yourself. Let's say the beginning of your career, you just graduated your undergrad, and you're like, "Here I am, world." If you could go talk to that person, that Meg, what would you say to her? What kind of things would you say? Do more, do less of, or what?
1: Yeah, I mean, as much as I'd like to say, "Oh, go smell the flowers," you know, take more time <laughs> off, don't work so hard. Yeah, I think that's the time when you kind of have to just work hard. <laughs> like, so I would go, I think I'd, I'd probably still stick with, yeah. you know what, if you want to be in a great position, you know, when you're not in your 20s, you're probably in your, or your 30s, you're going to need to, you know, spend some time making those investments early in your career. So I'd probably not tell myself anything different about that. Probably what I would advise though, is it's okay to be human and it's okay to be you. Um, I think at that time kind of like coming out of the eighties and going into the nineties, you know, as a young professional, I think, you know, I think you think you need to have, at least at that time, you know, you need the blue suit with the white shirt and, you know, don't have too much personality and just say yes to stuff that people ask you, um, you know, within moral boundaries, of course, but, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, just, you uh, kind of assume that what you're being told is okay. And I think being open to being more curious, asking more questions and being a better advocate, I think for yourself is Mm -hmm. something that I would have told, I I would go back and tell myself, Mm -hmm. you know, don't be afraid to ask like, Hey, you know, what's your advice for my career? Like, where do you see this company going? Like, you know, um, and that was something that I observed as some of my colleagues, who were earlier in their career, in particular at Sirius, a lot of the great folks that kind of grew up in the sales organization there, they were so good at you know, at that point in their careers, about asking senior leaders hard questions about mm-hmm. where the business was going and where they saw their careers going and what support they could get, and being advocates for themselves, and and I really admired that, and I think that's something that I would go back and tell my you know 25 year old self, like, hey, you're doing good work, you're bringing value, and in consulting, you literally know you're bringing value because they keep score in the form mm-hmm. of hours and dollars, right? You know, if you're bringing value, so that's nice too. I think the keeping score pieces is, is a is a good part when you can really feel confident about then going and saying, so, okay, you know, what's next? Like, where am I going with this? Yeah. Help me with my career path and not being afraid to ask about that. I don't think I was, I didn't empower myself enough. I mean, mm. it ended up fine, yeah. but, you know, maybe it could have ended up there faster or with me worrying a little less had I been bolder and, and more willing to be open about the questions I had or the needs that I had.
2: I like that. I like that. So,
0: so much wisdom to that, you know, and, and what I love about it is you're not saying, you know, like, oh, I'm gonna change this or, you know, bet on the Patriots for this Super Bowl. <laughs> you, you're saying like, you know, do, you you'd even I, I know you worked hard, so you're not even telling yourself to not work hard. You're not telling yourself to work harder, though. I noticed that part. <laughs> not
2: harder. I'm
0: not sure that's possible, yikes. It's like, yikes. <laughs> it's like you, you're gonna work hard in the next couple of years, you didn't even know it yet, but do that, keep doing that, and uh, it'll be worth it. But here are other things you can advocate for
2: yourself and all of that, that's amazing. Oh,
1: and also, Get yeah.
0: some sleep, for God's
1: sake. Like, uh, say, like, there were many years, and I'm like, how in heaven's name did I ever get through that? Because I just didn't sleep enough. And I think that that's a lesson I've learned too: is just get some rest. Um, and hopefully, all of us are able to do that now. But um, that, yeah, sleep is I would good. Say, though
0: it, you worked hard, and the, the fact that you're not even getting that much sleep, like you were clearly hustling, grinding it out, learning what you could. And that's why you're successful. That's why you're at the top of the marketing food chain. I mean, it's not like you randomly woke up one day and found yourself, Oh, look at me. I'm a CMO. I do marketing, right? It's like you you worked hard and you and you learned constantly. It was amazing.
1: Yeah. Hard work isn't a bad
0: thing. I think it's a good yeah. thing.
1: Yeah you know I mean yes have some boundaries like don't be an idiot but at the same time you know it gets you somewhere it does pay off and I wish I could tell people there was some like magic formula and some people do have luck but I don't know the more like if you ask those folks to tell their stories the ones that just seem like they were lucky they worked really hard to be that lucky
2: yeah it's like
0: (laughs) it's like skill and timing you know skill and preparation and you can be ready to capture the luck when it comes on by kind of thing. Yeah.
2: Exactly.
1: Exactly. You know, and, and I don't mind, I mean, and that goes back to two, if you like what you're doing, I'm not going to pretend like, Oh, if you love your job, you'll never feel like you work. No, you're going to feel like you work, but yeah. at least the day is going to be a heck of a lot more interesting if you like the work you're doing. And that's, you know, that's why I'm kind of excited about the future to sort of, you know, go back to things that I just love.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And time flies too. Like your dad, the architect, like, Time flies, like this podcast has flown by. Um, where can people connect with you? You know what? I'm not hard to
1: find. Like LinkedIn, easy. I'm forever posting things and commenting on things. And, you know, Megan, you are LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest place these days. Just don't send me a generic message. Tell me oh God, where but, the heck you came from. If
0: you did, I disavow <laughs> any knowledge of you. <laughs> you. say you heard it heard on the podcast you right. Get the last name, correct. Um, and yeah, say, Hey, we, we heard you on the podcast and I wanted to connect or, um, you know, if you want to uh, get some consulting, huh? get some of this knowledge in there, uh, definitely reach out.
1: Yeah. Give me awesome. great problems to solve. That's what I want to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Solve problems. Just attack, go for it and, and see those changes happen and help people grow help people get those promotions and all those kind of good things.
1: Absolutely. That's it.
0: This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for being on here. Like I literally could talk to you all day, um, but I think we'll let you um, get a few other things done. <laughs>
1: well, we're both East Coast. It's closing in on dinner time. So hopefully uh, nice. you and I both get to do some cooking.
0: That's right. It's about, it's about time for some Chianti, that's for sure. <laughs> um, hey, you know, um, for those listening, if you've learned something and I know you have, because I literally have two pages of notes over here, <laughs> then share this with someone. Be a thought leader to one person, four people, like 12, I don't know, 48, 97 people. Just get that message out, LinkedIn, whatever. The things that Meg is talking about are fantastic, simplifying things like ABM. You will never, ever need to worry about that myth with serious decisions. Now you understand it's digital and sales is important, but how can we work together as a team? Amazing stuff. Thank you so much again, Megan Hewer. You're amazing.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Casey. This was so much fun. I loved it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we will, we'll have to come back and, and talk more. more. This is just uh, super fantastic.
1: Well, my pleasure. Absolutely. And thank you again for having me.
0: Absolutely. And for those listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time. See ya. <laughs> all right. A big thank you to today's sponsors, Cheshire Impact helping marketers and sales win, maximizing the use of Pardot and Salesforce. And a big thank you to Qualified.com, the number one live chat and chatbot platform for Salesforce and Pardot. Remember the giveaway, if you have Salesforce Pardot and you want a free copy of my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed, then you go over to Qualified.com, engage in a chat, do a demo and tell them that Casey sent you And that book will be on its way to your door. All right, we'll see you all in the next one.